Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in out of this summer heat. It does seem to go on forever, doesn't it? Mr. Santoro is still out taking care of himself, and that makes me, again, Stephen Kilpatrick. Speaking of Mr. Santaro, he reminded me that I had neglected to give credit to the artist behind our cover art for July, and now I will mend the error of my ways. Simon Allen tells us that the piece was made with 3D Studio Max, ZBrush, and Adobe Potato Shop. Or is that Photoshop? This image was inspired by Arthur Macon's novella, The Great God Pan. Macon's work is like classy, Victorian Lovecraft, and is not the cuddly, randy little scamp of Greek fable, but an amoral, shape-changing being that lives in the larger universe beyond what our minds and senses can conceive. He first heard of Macon through Tales to Terrify, for which he is eternally grateful. Mr. Allen goes on also to tell us that he is a CGI artist and maker of 3D-printed jewelry, most of it manly, inspired by weird fiction, sci-fi, and horror. He thinks they are things that Tales to Terrify listeners would like, and they can have a look at surfacedefect.com or facebook.com slash surfacedefect. And after giving a look at the items myself, I think I'd agree with him. The links will be in the show notes. He also lives in dirty old London town with his wife and daughter, and unusually for a Tales to Terrify submitter, no cats at all. Speaking of which, I feel like I'm forgetting something. Ah, yes, Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook. Mahler needs fed. While I'm tending to that, take a seat. Get comfortable. We have two stories for you this evening. The first of which is by Tim Wagoner. He's no stranger in these parts. In fact, we heard from him just a couple weeks ago with the story, Picking Up Courtney. 
Tim Wagoner wrote his first story at the age of five when he created a comic book version of King Kong vs. Godzilla on a stenographer's pad. It took him a few more years until he began selling professionally, though. Overall, he has published close to 30 novels and three short story collections, and his articles on writing have appeared in Writer's Digest and Writer's Journal, among other publications. He teaches creative writing at Sinclair Community College and in Seton Hill University's Master of Fine Arts in Writing Popular Fiction program. He hopes to continue writing and teaching until he keels over dead, after which he wants to be stuffed and mounted and then placed in front of his computer terminal. So, while I find food for Mahler, give a listen to Tim's X-Turn, originally published in Dark Discoveries. I think that it will be perfect dinner entertainment for anyone with a stomach for it. Mr. Dermot, your pancreas, please. Dr. Feculent held out his discoloured hand with its cracked, elongated nails and scowled impatiently. Dermot was uncomfortably aware of all the other externs looking at him, more than a few grinning at his predicament. They all stood around a bed of rusty razor blades upon which rested the moaning, writhing form of something which might once have been human, but then again might not. It was the moaning which had tripped Dermot up. Dr. Feculent had asked him whether the patient was crying out in pleasure or pain. Dermot, unable to tell, had taken a wild guess and said pain. Obviously the wrong answer, or Dr. Feculent wouldn't be demanding his pancreas. Dermot had no choice. Burning with shame and anger, but determined not to show it, he reached towards the moist, quivering mass of organs which hung from the gaping, bloodless cavity which had once been his chest and abdomen, and slid his hand past his liver, under his stomach, and grasped the slippery prize that Dr. Feculent demanded as the price of Dermot's ignorance. He took a firm grip and pulled. His pancreas came free with a wet tearing sound like overcooked chicken meat falling off the bone. He held the organ out to Dr. Feculent. The doctor, a tiny, gnarled grey troll of a man with wisps of shadow where his legs should have been, snatched the pancreas away from Dermot. He popped the organ into his mouth, needing to unhinge his small jaw in order to accomplish this task, and swallowed. His jaw clicked back into place, and without so much as a last look at Dermot, let alone any comment on the flavour of his pancreas, Dermot thought sourly, he turned to another extern. Miss Lavinia! Can you tell us whether this patient, one of Dr. Feculent's shadow wisps solidified long enough for him to kick the bed, the motion setting the bloody shredded creature upon it to moaning even louder, is expressing pleasure or pain? Levina smiled, displaying an enticing array of yellow teeth jammed into sore, bleeding gums. Pleasure, of course, but pleasure so intense that it might as well be pain. Dr. Feculent nodded, pleased. Precisely right, my dear. Lavina shrugged, the motion setting her exposed organs to bobbling. Nothing to it, Doctor. She gave Dermot a sideways glance with her delectably bloodshot eyes. All one has to do is listen. Dermot made it through the rest of rounds without losing any more organs, which was good, because after several weeks of training under the meticulous and exacting Dr. Feculent, he didn't have many to spare. When he'd first been accepted to study at the facility, he'd been thrilled, and determined to work as long and hard as it took to become a doctor. And he'd passed his first test as an extern, conducting his own evisceration, sans anaesthetic and instruments, with ease. He had no trouble with the mechanics of the rather specialised form of medicine practised at the facility, but the subtleties continually eluded him, 
and it was the subtleties Dr. Feckland had pointed out to him on more than one occasion after polishing off one of Dermot's soft parts that made an ordinary doctor a great doctor. And Dermot was determined to be a great doctor, no matter what the cost. When Dr. Feculent had gone on to his other duties, and Dermot's fellow externs, including that maddening bitch Lavinia, were off to their disparate assignments, he returned to the scene of his humiliation. The room was empty, save for the rickety bed upon which the bleeding, scarred and scabbed mound of flesh wiggled. Dermot could hear the sound of its thick skin parting and peeling away as it writhed against the dulled, red-brown, flaking metal of the rusty razor blades. He could smell the coppery tang of fresh blood overlaying the flat, rank stench of old blood. Much old blood. He heard the soft keening sounds that drifted forth from what was left of the patient's mouth and throat. He had no trouble detecting these details. They were completely objective. They existed. His senses perceived them, and that was that. But to tell what the patient was actually feeling... He heard Lavinia's smug voice. All one has to do is listen. He wished she were here so he could tear out her vocal cords with his teeth. But instead of swallowing her flesh, he swallowed his pride and did as she had suggested. He closed his eyes, bent all his considerable intelligence and will to the task, and listened. As he focused on the patient's cries, more details became clear. A nearly inaudible wet clicking from somewhere deep inside, a soft flutter of decaying moth wings coming from the lungs, a slick sliding of sweat and blood-covered rolls of flesh. All these things and more he heard, but he couldn't hear what Lavinia had, couldn't hear anything that told him what the patient was feeling. His eyes snapped open. With a roar of rage and frustration, Dermot plunged his hands into the patient's boneless flab and violently worked the flesh back and forth against the razored bed as if it were a giant cheese grater. When he was finished, there was nothing left but greasy red hunks of meat, scattered and splattered about the room. Well, I can't fault your enthusiasm, Dermot. The gore-covered extern whirled to see Dr. Feculent floating in the doorway. I must say your bedside manner leaves something to be desired. They sat in the doctor's office, feculent behind the barnacle-encrusted and seaweed-draped carcass of some strange sea beast he used for a desk, Dermot cross-legged upon a plastic cushion stuffed with used hypodermics and surgical wipes. Gobbets of patient dripped off him like crimson rain and struck the plastic with wet plapping sounds. Dr. Feculent looked at Dermot for a long time before speaking. "'You're one of the most talented externs we've ever had at this facility, Dermot,' he said at last. Dermot didn't know what he'd expected Feculent to say, but this certainly wasn't it. The doctor plunged a hand through the hard hide of his desk, and with a thick sucking sound pulled out a mucus-slick file folder. Feculent shook the folder several times to get the worst of the muck off, then opened it and scanned the contents. According to our records, your talents manifested early, at the tender age of four. Dermot remembered. I dissected the neighbour's cat with an exacto knife I stole from my father's workbench. Dermot had performed the procedure with the utmost precision, laying the organs out on the back porch just so, examining each one in turn, and when he was finished, putting them all back exactly where they belonged. Well, almost exactly. After all, he'd been only four. You fulfilled your early promise, Dr. Feculent said, eventually moving from cats to dogs and from dogs to your siblings and then to your parents. 
And once simple disassembly began to pale, after all, there are only so many ways to take something apart, aren't there? You started to, uh, experiment. It was the result of one of these experiments which drew the attention of the local authorities to you, wasn't it? And as a result, you soon found yourself a permanent resident of an institution for the criminally insane. That is, until a recruiter from this facility paid you a visit. We had heard of your work, and while your efforts were somewhat simplistic, Dermot scowled, we thought them technically proficient enough to offer you an externship. Dermot had leapt at the chance, and the recruiter used the facility's connections to get him released. Feculent closed the file and jammed it back into the guts of his desk. He removed his hand and licked his slime-coated fingers clean. When he was finished, he smacked his dry, cracked lips and continued. And now, here you are, Dermot. Your work above reproach on a mechanical level, but when it comes to truly understanding what it means to be a doctor... Feculent trailed off, shaking his head. Dermot could see his heart pounding faster, but try as he might... He couldn't force it to slow down. It was most embarrassing. I am afraid that, despite your skills, your future here is in doubt. Feculent considered for a moment. Have you thought of taking up serial killing? It's not medicine, but I'm told it has its own rather pedestrian rewards. Fury washed through Dermot like a battery acid enema. His heart pounded angrily, and he grabbed the throbbing organ and squeezed hard to calm it. I was born to be a doctor he said through gritted teeth. Feculent looked at Dermot, a dark, dangerous light flickering in the depths of his filmy white eyes. That, my dear boy, remains to be seen. Dermot stalked the dank, winding corridors of the facility, pausing only to administer an occasional kick to a patient lying on the floor. How dare Feculent talk to him like that? Dermot was one of the most skilled externs the facility had ever seen. But that didn't matter, did it? Dermot thought bitterly. Not as long as Feculent had it in his tiny dog turd of a mind that he was lacking whatever it was. He didn't understand it well enough to name it. No. Despite Dermot's considerable skill, Feculent would bounce him out of the programme. He'd made that quite clear in his barely-veiled parting threat. And being bounced at the facility could mean so many things. So many dreadful things. But Dermot was determined. If he didn't have this whatever it was, then he'd just have to get it, wouldn't he? And he knew just the place. He found Lavinia in the maternity ward, helping Dr. Squibb jam miscarried fetuses back into their screaming mothers. He waited for an opportunity to speak with her. One finally came when Dr. Squibb shoved a little too hard and shredded a woman's lower torso. He dropped the fetus to the floor in irritation and called for an orderly to clean up the mess and deliver it to the cafeteria, and stomped off. Lavinia started to follow, but Dermot caught her eye and motioned for her to come over. As she walked, her exposed organs jiggled most enticingly, but Dermot didn't care. He had other things on his mind. What do you want, Dermot? I've got to meet Dr. Rigger in the flensing room in fifteen... Lavinia was cut off in mid-sentence as Dermot slashed a scalpel through the creamy mushroom-coloured flesh of her throat. Thick, black blood gushed forth. Lavinia tried to stem the flood of ichor with her hands, but she might as well have tried to hold back the ocean armed with nothing but a sieve and a sponge. Dermot's cut had been too deep, too precise. It took a few moments before she lost consciousness and fell to the floor. The orderlies, who were busy cleaning up after Dr. Squibb's last patient, paid no attention. It wasn't their place. 
And besides, they had no sensory organs to speak of. When Lavinia's heart and lungs stilled, Dermot knelt beside her and readied his scalpel. Lavinia had the whatever it was. She proved that today during rounds. Now all Dermot had to do was find it and make it his. He began cutting. Where's Lavinia? Dr. Feculent asked in mild puzzlement. Isn't like her to be tardy for rounds. The externs looked at each other, some shrugging, some shaking their heads. Dermot tried not to smile. Feculent looked at Dermot and frowned slightly. He nodded to the freshly stitched incision on Dermot's left temple. Getting some extra credit work, Dermot. Dermot kept his tone even. Just trying to keep up with my studies, Doctor. Feculent humphed. Very well, then. He glanced at his watch. We can wait for Lavinia no longer. Let us begin. The first few cases they saw were simple ones. A pair of twins in the first stages of being returned to the single egg from which they'd come, and a famous fashion model who was undergoing a reverse liposuction to receive the total amount of fat taken from all the women in the world who'd suffered through useless fad diets and painful surgical procedures to try and look like her. Nothing particularly radical or challenging, and what few questions Dr. Feculent asked weren't directed to Dermot. But then the doctor led them to an area of the facility that Dermot wasn't familiar with. They walked some time in silence down corridor after corridor until Feculent had them stop before a featureless wooden door. I have something rather special planned today, he gestured to the door. Dermot, if you'll do the honours. There was something about Feculent's tone that Dermot didn't like, but he did as the doctor bade and stepped forwards to open the door. Inside, instead of a hospital room, was a yard. A tiny, postage-stamp-sized yard before a humble one-storey house. A house that Dermot recognised. Dr. Feculent grinned. Who said you can't go home again? Dermot just stood, staring. He felt Dr. Feculent give him a shove, and he stumbled across the threshold and into the yard. Go on, Feculent said, as he gripped Dermot's elbow and steered him forwards. Dermot was dimly aware of the other externs filing in behind them, but he didn't care. He was transfixed by the scene on the porch. A young boy, no more than four, was hunched over something that Dermot couldn't see. But then, he didn't need to see it, did he? He knew what it was. A cat. Or rather, several pieces of a cat. Dr. Feculent continued urging him forward towards the porch. I've planned a little surprise quiz for you today, Dermot. He pushed Dermot onto the front steps, then stopped. Don't worry, the lad can't see us. This was a very important moment in your life, wasn't it? Perhaps, in many ways, the most important. Dermot nodded as he watched the little boy he'd been go methodically and coldly about his work. Feculent went on. It was the day your skills first blossomed, but the medicine we practice at the facility is about so much more than technique. There are many, many ways to cause simple physical pain. However, there are an infinite amount of ways to torture and degrade the spirit. To accomplish the latter, a doctor needs more than the ability to put together and take apart fleshy tinker toys. A true doctor needs empathy, Dermot. The ability not just to feel pain, but to understand it, inside and out. Dermot couldn't take his gaze off his younger self, but he heard the grin in Feculent's voice. Only when one truly understands pain, in all its myriad glory, can one effectively engender it. Only then can one become a true doctor, in the fullest sense of the word. Feculent stepped, or rather drifted, up until he was positioned directly next to Dermot. He leaned over and whispered in Dermot's ear, 
his breath morgue frigid and stale. The test is simple, Dermot. All you have to do is feel. Feel for this little boy you once were. Feel for the dark path he has set his tiny feet upon this day. Feel for all who will fall beneath his knife in the years to come. Feel and understand. Dermot concentrated, willing the small hunk of Lavinia's brain that he had transplanted into his skull the night before to do its job, willing it to feel. It gave a couple of spastic twitches, and then a spiteful thought drifted across his consciousness, a thought which came in Lavinia's voice. Get bent! And then, nothing. The operation had failed. He stared at the boy, at himself, desperately trying to eke out the slightest hint of emotion from his flat and lifeless psyche. But it was no use. The boy might have been a stranger to Dermot for all that he felt. Just another patient. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Another piece of meat for him to work on. Dr. Feculent, Sorry, Dermot. I'm afraid you failed. He reached forward and gripped the little boy's neck and twisted. There was a loud crack and the boy's eyes bulged and then he fell limp. Feculent released the small corpse, and it collapsed onto the bloody form of the cat that the boy had been labouring over. Dermot still struggled to feel something, anything. Sadness, pity, fear, despair, but all he felt was a burgeoning anger. Dr Feculent floated down the stairs and towards the open doorway, the other externs following behind. But Dermot stepped forward and knelt beside the still warm body of the little boy. He rolled him off the bloody, disemboweled cat and onto his back. Dermot then reached into the pocket of his lab coat and brought forth his trusty scalpel, which was still coated with the dried flakes of Lavinia's blood. He was a doctor, no matter what feculent or anybody else said, and he could fix this. He could heal the boy, make it so he could feel. All it would take was a little surgical skill. He ripped open the boy's shirt and plunged the blade into the soft, virgin pink flesh at the base of his throat, and made an incision. The skin peeled away to reveal not ribs, heart and lungs, 
but instead a vast, unending black void, an infinite expanse of pure and broken nothingness. And then the nothingness reached for Dermot. Dr. Feculent closed the door on the extern screams. It's a shame Dermot didn't take my suggestion about serial killing. He might have been quite good at it. Ah, well, shall we continue our rounds, people? The doctor drifted down the hallway, his students shuffling along behind. Delicious. Extern was read to us by Richie Smith, born in 1980, and it's been pretty much downhill all the way since then. Currently lives in Old Trafford with a death metal musician and a salamander. He's putting his master's degree to good use as a roadie for a heavy metal band in Slovenia. If you'd like to say hello, you can find Richie on Twitter at Narenschiff. Rather than spelling it, you'll find a link in the show notes. Our second story of the night is Extraneous Invocat, written by Ed Grabianowski. If you are a podcast aficionado, you may hear Josh and Chuck of How Stuff Works sing the praises of articles written by the Grabster. That'd be Ed. In addition to How Stuff Works, his freelance writing can be found at io9.com, thesweethome.com, and gothic.net. In the show notes, you'll find links to both his homepage and also his Twitter account. And, without additional delay, Extraneous Invocat. None of these little incidents meant anything to me at first. I drew no connections. It started in the middle of a fall afternoon, sunny and crisp. We were packing up the apartment to move. After two years in the same tiny space, we were making a little more money and moving to a slightly nicer neighborhood. The living room was a maze of cardboard boxes, stacked and taped and labeled, or hanging open, half filled with the bits and pieces of life we'd collected over our few years together. Laura's boxes were neatly arranged in rows of paper-wrapped dishes, carefully cataloged books, tidily folded hand towels. The boxes I'd packed were filled with slowly growing mounds of old magazines, bits of electronic equipment, guitar picks. I walked in from one of the two bedrooms with an armload of winter scarves and hats. Should we keep these out, or do you think we'll manage to find them before it gets too cold out? I looked at Laura, who was bent over a box with her back to me. Sun shone through the wide front windows onto her long, dark, silken hair. She shuddered then. Not a physical shudder, not like a seizure. More like the twitch you see when the film is about to break at a movie theater. She flickered. I blinked, thinking something was in my eye. She was silent and oddly still, crouching low over the box. Then I noticed her hair. Just a second ago, I had been thinking of making a silly comment about how her sleek, shiny hair looked like it was right out of a shampoo commercial. But now it hung in thick, wet strings, hiding her face from my view entirely. It was all so strange, and happened so quickly, I don't really remember what I was thinking. Mostly, I was mildly irritated that she hadn't answered my question. But a numbness crept up my spine as I realized something was not right. Laura? Louder this time. Perhaps she moved slightly. I wasn't sure. But she remained silent, and my vague feelings of strangeness escalated quickly. A note of panic crept into my voice. Laura, is something wrong? She let out a sound then that I hesitate even to think about, and words probably cannot describe it. The closest I can come is that it was a sort of clicking sigh, 
At that moment she shuddered, twitched again, and it seemed as though the room brightened. Without realizing there had been a change, I saw that her hair looked as it had before, and she was busily wrapping glasses in tissue paper and lining them up in a cardboard carton. My rising wave of dread crested then, and when I called her name again, she mistook the note of urgency for anger. She turned, frowning, and snapped, What? I think I just stood there blinking stupidly at her for a moment, and already my mind had rejected the entire experience. I... weird. I just zoned out there for a minute. Sorry, I said. Should we pack these? A few days later, I called her at work. One of the other women in the office answered, No, Laura wasn't in. Yes, she was a little late coming back from lunch. No, they didn't know where she'd gone. She didn't usually leave the office for lunch, and she was hardly ever late for anything, but I didn't think twice about it at the time. Later that week, I happened to thumb through a local newspaper, and a small article in the city news section caught my eye. Witness claims stranger walks downtown streets. A homeless man was attacked on the city's west side yesterday afternoon, although police are having trouble getting a description of the attacker. Hale Thomas Donovan, 52, of no permanent address, reported the attack at 1.30 p.m. after passersby found him huddled on Dearborn Street near the Squaw Island Railroad Bridge. He was yelling incoherently and was visibly terrified, according to the police report. He was treated for trauma and released from Sisters of Mercy Medical Center, although witnesses believed the man was not physically injured. In his statement to police, Donovan only said that he met a stranger under the bridge. Police confirmed that they received two other reports that day of a strange person on the city's west side. The apartment was mostly packed up at that point. We were living on frozen pizza eaten off of paper plates for the next few days. Every night we went to bed exhausted from packing and lugging boxes around. That night, I read in bed for a short while as Laura fell asleep beside me. She lay on her side, her back to me. When I set down my book and turned out the light, I leaned forward to kiss her goodnight. She made a soft, happy sound and snuggled back into me briefly. I was soon as sound asleep as she was. When I awoke, I had no idea what time it was. Our alarm clock had long since been packed, and Laura was using her watch alarm to wake up for work in the morning. It was still extremely dark. The only light, a feeble blue glow from the streetlight outside, filtered through shade and curtains. Guessing it was about 3 a.m., I stretched sleep-stiff muscles and turned over to face Laura. She still had her back to me, sound asleep on her side. In the dim light, I could see the slow, shallow rising and falling of her breath. I reached out to gently stroke her hair until I fell back to sleep. It was ice cold and soaking wet. I froze in place, my body instantly rigid as the memory of the afternoon packing flooded me with terror. My throat was tight and dry, adrenaline surging through me as I tried to keep my hand still, plotting how to withdraw without letting her know I was awake. I pulled my hand from that clammy mass as slowly as I could, fighting the urge to recoil in a panic. My fingers were tingling from fear and another, stronger numbness that spread down my arm as I tried to pull it back beneath the cover silently. Just then, she made that chittering sound again. This time, I realized what it was. She was laughing. I pressed myself hard against the wall on my side of the bed, heart slamming and skittering, arms pressed tight to my sides. My eyes were wide open, glaring into the darkness, watching the shape in the bed beside me for any kind of movement. I didn't know what was lying less than two feet from me. 
I remained that way, rigid with terror for quite some time. I didn't sleep. I don't think I even blinked. I never noticed a change, but at some point I heard a soft snoring, a familiar Laura sound. I relaxed somewhat, but a few minutes later when she stirred and rolled over, my every muscle pulled taut with apprehension. It was just Laura, peaceful and sleep. My fear ebbed away, and in the absence of adrenaline my eyes refused to stay open. Although I slept soundly, I woke up with stiff, sore muscles. My shoulders ached, and I remember vaguely that I'd had one of my being-chased dreams. I've been having them since childhood, and I suppose they're common enough. In mine, I never quite know who or what is chasing me. Usually I find myself being chased through a suburban neighborhood, hopping fences, trying and failing to gain ground on my shadowy pursuer. I never get caught in these dreams. But then I always have another one a few weeks later. Laura came back into the bedroom just before she left for work. She looked down at me with a look of concern. Did you sleep okay? She asked. You look pale. She reached out a hand to touch my cheek and I flinched. Looking confused and hurt, Laura stepped back. What? She smelled her hand. Do I smell bad? What's wrong? The unconscious jolt of fear brought the previous night's encounter back to the forefront of my mind, but already the defensive mechanisms of the human psyche were at work, diffusing the memory as I convinced myself it was part of my nightmare. No, it's it's not you. I think I was having a nightmare when I woke up, and I'm still a little foggy. She gave a half-smile and leaned down to kiss me goodbye. I reached up to give her a quick hug, feeling the warmth of her body and her soft skin against my face. Then she was gone. That night, Laura left for a two-day conference in Memphis. I dropped her off at the airport and got back to the apartment around nine at night. There wasn't much to do, since most of the packing was finished, and we were just waiting for the occupants of our new apartment to move out. I had a TV and a couch. Everything else was sealed in boxes. I ordered a pizza and settled in to watch a baseball game. At about 1 a.m., I woke up with a stiff neck. I'd fallen asleep at an odd angle on the couch. The game was long over. An infomercial bathed the room in flickering bluish light, but I'd turned the volume very low, so I couldn't hear what they were selling. Some kind of exercise equipment it looked like. It wasn't the infomercial or sore neck that awakened me, however. It was the early autumn chill that pervaded the apartment. Puzzled and still groggy, I sat up and realized that the door to the apartment was open. At that moment, I also noticed a foul odor, as though from rotted meat. I walked to the door, seeing that the outer door was also hanging ajar. It was gusty out, and the night air was blowing into the apartment. I closed both doors, certain that I hadn't forgotten to latch them shut earlier, but I could come up with no other explanation. Neither could I find any source for the smell, which was fading quickly. There was literally no other food in the house, and the garbage was outside in the dumpster. My 2 a.m. sleuthing skills exhausted, I gave up and went to bed. The night's sleep was uneventful. On Saturday morning, I picked up Laura at the airport. That night was to be our last at the apartment, but we were still in limbo. Everything packed. Nothing to do but wait. Even the cable had been shut off. We spent the afternoon and evening seeing a movie and having dinner at a nearby restaurant. The televisions over the bar, usually turned to a ball game, were buzzing with news about a recent murder. An old woman had been found mutilated in her home. They kept showing footage of a man in a suit, a detective, I guess, walking out of the house with his hand over his mouth, his eyes wide with shock. 
Our spirits were subdued when we got home, and before long, we went to bed. What happened that night? I thought it was the most horrifying night of my entire life. I was wrong, but at the time I couldn't imagine anything worse. It started out much like before. Something awoke me deep in the night. I had no sense of time, but it was very dark. I immediately knew something was wrong. I'd been having tense and disturbing dreams, partly from the news stories about the murder. Faceless men in suits were knocking at my door, walking around the house I was in, peering into the windows. But something other than a nightmare was contributing to my malaise. She made the sound. That... that laughter. That hideous, mind-wrenching sound no human could make. My body went numb with terror, and I gasped out loud. Again I shrunk to the far wall, pressed against it, my eyes frantically scanning the blackness for movement. I couldn't imagine passing another night like that, straining to hear, praying that nothing happened. But I felt the bed shift. A gout of cold air, reeking of rot, bathed my face. The shape in the bed beside me rolled over. If I live for a thousand years, I will never forget that face. It was my wife's face, but corrupted, like my wife was being worn by something that was not the same shape. The mouth was stretched in a wide rictus, literally from ear to ear. An inner set of black, oily lips curled back in a manic smile, uncovering a row of impossibly large teeth. I could see things caught in those teeth. The eyes were huge, glistening black, no iris or pupil. The nose was distorted into a thin ridge of bone with narrow slits. The scalp and hair seemed to hang loosely, as if partially detached from the skull beneath. And yet the mottled gray skin of the thin neck disappeared into my wife's pale blue nightshirt. It was an obscenity. It was crawling across the bed towards me, unnaturally agile. Those eyes widened, the grin somehow stretching, the jaw working at a bizarre speed. Still that sound issued from its throat. I tried to scream, but my throat was clenched in terror. A hand gripped my shoulder, terrifyingly strong and cold as ice. Its face was inches from mine now, the mouth opening wide. It screamed at me. It was a shrill, screeching roar of deafening volume, so loud it made my eyes hurt. As it screamed, it shook violently. The cold, wet hair flailed and fell in thick ropes across the face. But the cold, black eyes stayed focused on mine. When I awoke, the room was flooded with sun. I have no idea what happened. I can only assume that I passed out from sheer terror. Laura was already up, showering. I went to the other bathroom to wash a strange chemical taste out of my mouth. In the mirror, I noticed that thin trails of blood had seeped from the corners of my eyes, then dried. Somehow I got through that day. I stayed busy with loading the moving van, unloading at the new apartment, unpacking. I avoided Laura. I didn't know what to think or what to do. I finally convinced myself that whatever had happened was probably related to the apartment itself. Since we were moving, I was escaping whatever it was. I woke up in the middle of the night again. We were sleeping on a mattress on the floor, surrounded by boxes. My heart was slamming in my chest as I looked at Laura. She seemed to be sleeping peacefully, lying on her side, facing away from me. That made it even more of a shock when I heard the sound. The laughter again. It seemed so loud, though. I tried to get up, get out of the bed and away, but I could not move my limbs. The clicking laugh sound came again, 
but this time I felt it. I felt it come from my own throat. My limbs began moving then, but I was not in control. I was a passenger. I put my hand on Laura's shoulder, squeezing hard. It was my hand, but not my hand. Gray-skinned and clawed. It woke her up. Hey, ow! As she rolled over and I began to pull at her shoulder. Opened her eyes and screamed just as her arm pulled free. I could see clearly. Her eyes had gone glassy with terror, and her scream was soon cut short. I can only hope she went into shock before most of what came next. I was not in control, but I watched it all happen. That was Extraneous Invocat. Just to make sure I heard that right, the story starts with a loving couple on moving day and ends with one murdering the other. Who couldn't have seen that coming? Our second story is read to us by Jim Phillips, also no stranger to the nook. You may remember his wonderful reading of The Bone Plate way back in show number 80. Jim is a world wanderer, and in fact, the last email he sent me told me that he had just got back into the United States from abroad. Jim lives on a mountaintop in Southern California, where he enjoys playing in the park with his young son, touring around on his motorbike, and considering his daughter's high cost of education. He has several degrees in engineering, and also can claim five languages, at least enough to keep him out of trouble, or into trouble, depending on his mood. He is also the audio engineer for our neighbor right here in the District of Wonders, Crime City Central. And that will be that for this evening. Take care as you leave the nook and head to wherever a person goes to after hearing gruesome tales of murder in the macabre. I hope you enjoyed your time with us here at Tales to Terrify. And, oh, pleasant dreams. Mmm... On a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 